This afternoon I want to share with you or begin with a, um, a passage from the Connected Discourses. And it begins. Practitioners, there are these five powers. And the five powers really, you could say, are synonymous with these five spiritual faculties that we've been exploring. What five? The power of faith, the power of energy, the power of mindfulness, the power of concentration, and the power of wisdom. These are the five powers. Practitioners, just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too a practitioner who develops and cultivates the five powers slants, slopes, and inclines towards freedom, towards awakening. So tonight, I, the, the question I want to pose is how, how do all of us continue to cultivate these five spiritual faculties that we've been talking about this retreat? How do you continue? And in particular, I want to put it in the, the context of where we find ourselves. Here we are on this retreat, and tomorrow this retreat ends, and the real retreat begins. <laughs> just beginning this is a (laughs) warm-up so how do we continue in that in that fashion or basically how do how do we integrate what we've been doing here with what's next again another zen story uh when i was a monk during our training period, each uh, month we would uh, have at least one die session, which is, you could say, a great retreat. It was a seven-day retreat that had a more intensity to it. And often, but not always, often after a die session, we would immediately begin another session called uh, 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 Nyuran Kashi session. And so it would be a, a session that uh, would begin right after that. I should be honest, one of the things I loved about Nirankashi session is if there was a session immediately after Dai session, that means that we'd have a Hashinkuji day. And the best thing about a Hashinkuji day is that we got to get up at 5.30 a.m. instead of 3 a.m. <laughs> and we'd have 15 minutes to get to the meditation hall instead of 10. <laughs> it was so luxurious. <laughs> it was really, that was the best thing. The worst is when there was no Nirankashi session and he had a 3 a.m. wake up after Dai session. But uh, the way uh, Nirankashi session was explained to us is that uh, that it means something like kneading the dough. And in particular, the way it was uh, uh, shared with us is that you're kneading the dough, you're kneading uh, the, the, uh, this dough that you've been cultivating over dye session back into your life. So you're preparing it in order for it to be baked, but it, but it needs this preparation for it to really integrate. In a, in, in a sense. And it reminds me of what it's like to knead dough, for those of you who have done that, of just that process of kneading, where it's really working in, uh, depending on which method you use, you get, you're you working in the rest of the flour. Sometimes uh, uh, people uh, knead in just a little bit more oil. Seeds, sometimes is when I knead those in. Sometimes you can put millet in there. Sometimes oats. And it's kneading them all in in order for it to, to be, be prepared, in order for it to, to bake. So I think in the same way, it's this question that I'm, I'm offering. How do we need your experience back into your life? And how do you need these five spiritual faculties back into your life? And how do you continue to cultivate them so that they can uh, end up being the nourishment for our lives? Uh, and again, j- just uh, uh, to follow along this this theme that I'm giving you, I think one of the other wonderful things about Nirankashi session is that it was a reminder that that really every day is a day for our practice. Every day really is a, a day that we can be on retreat, depending upon how we were relating to it. 
And traditionally, like in a traditional Zen monastery, this is embodied a lot of times in the, the lifestyle. For example, we weren't completely traditional. But but traditionally, the, the way that, um, at least the way I was taught, is that everything should happen um, in the Zendo, in the meditation hall. So you sleep there, you eat there, so you have your meals there, and you're meditating there. So you're doing everything there in order that you don't leave the space, leave the space of practice. And I think in the same way, that's what we're actually learning. How do we not leave the space of practice? How do you remain in the space of practice? Or again, how do you need the dough of, of, of bringing these five faculties into your life so that they slope and climb towards your freedom? And I want to point out what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight. Uh, most of it is uh, probably not going to be anything new to you, but really more in the spirit of a reminder. And it's important to remember to take what's useful and leave the rest behind. Because this process of kneading the dough of the five faculties, kneading the dough of the Dharma into your life, is it can be quite unique uh, to each, each and every one of us. So you have a task here to see what, what skillfully fits and what skillfully doesn't. And one of the arenas I want to uh, begin with this theme of kneading the dough of these five faculties back into our lives is uh, daily and regular practice. And you're going to hear, it's going to be like dough, like you were just sprinkling, sprinkling the sunflower seeds in there. So you're going to see a seed of sati or mindfulness there, or a seed of faith, or a seed of concentration, or, or samadhi, or wisdom kind of popping up in some kind of way, or the, the seed of energy. So it's not going to be in any kind of linear way. It's more the speckling that you get in, in such dough. I think I was sharing this uh, with someone today. The, the The most common question that practitioners come to me with, do you know what that is? How do I maintain a regular practice? I'm having such a hard time. <laughs> is this surprising to anyone that this is the most common question? And so I want to share with you some reflections that might be helpful for uh, uh, continuing with some kind of regularity. And it, it comes back to uh, the first uh, of the five spiritual faculties, this quality of faith. And in particular, I think it's the quality of faith that I was sharing with you of coming back to the Pali word uh, sadha. And I was connecting it to one way of translating it, of putting one's heart into something. So really falling lo in love with the practice. And the reason I mentioned this is that Oh, for me, what I've realized for a regular practice, what's so important is that I am in contact with that love, or another word, is that I find my passion for this practice. Because when I'm passionate for the practice, it continues. And there's a place for passion on this path. Actually, Susie spoke a little bit about that last night during the, the, the Q&A. And there's, a, a, again, a, a Pali word for that, chanda. Uh, and, and in particular, dhamma chanda. This, this sense of, um, uh, of this passion for the, for the dhamma, for the dharma. Which is different than kama chanda, which is uh, sense desire. And again, another quote, this is from the uh, Vinaya. Just as, pra just as practitioners don, the don is the forerunner, the harbinger, harbinger of the arising of the sun. So possession of desire or passion, the word is chanda, is the forerunner, the harbinger of the arising of the noble eightfold path. Of a practitioner who is possessed of desire, of chanda, it may be expected that they will cultivate the noble eightfold path. That way they will make much of the noble eightfold way. Isn't it interesting? That there's, there's a place for this. It's so important for our hearts to be moved in some kind of manner. That there's this, this, this impulse. 
how to understand this passion and again uh, with a little bit of what Susie was mentioning last night of when is it a kind of passion or desire that's filled with a kind of clinging that's leading to suffering and a kind of passion that that is leading to the end of suffering and an image that I want to share with you that comes from uh, uh, the commentary the Vasudhimaga uh, by Buddhaghosa when he's talking about chanda, he gives this this image of um, a kind of this mental hand that's reaching. So it's a quality of reaching, the way passion can reach for something. But a kind of reaching that's not entangled in a quality of grasping. Or you could say, not entangled in a quality of expectation. So for me, it's this feeling sense of moving forward without expectation. An example that works for me for this is the simple act of, you've probably heard of this before, the simple act of hiking up a mountain. There can be this passion, this, this impulse to move forward to the top of the mountain. But at the same time, the, the, the attention is just on one step after another. This step, and then this step, and then this step, rather than being lost in some story about the peak. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote um, The Little Prince, he put it well. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn of the vast and endless sea. Right? Instead, teach them to yearn of the vast and endless sea. Can you yearn in a skillful way, in a way that moves you, in a way that keeps you connected with this practice? Again, another example around this. I remember trying to learn to juggle at one point. I didn't get very far. Do you know why I didn't get very far? I'm not very passionate about juggling. <laughs> I think it just comes down to that. I don't think it's a matter of discipline. I don't practice because I'm a disciplined person. I'm, I practice because I'm passionate about this path. If I was passionate about juggling, it would have happened. I would have done it again and again and again. So you don't have to be disciplined, rather you have to be passionate. And this really fits in with this second spiritual faculty. When there's the strong faith, when there's the passion, there's the appropriate effort, the appropriate energy. And it's something that I invite you to reflect on. What allows you to remain passionate about this path, about this practice? What fuels it? It could be all kinds of things. It could just be the, the, being passionate about this, the activity of sitting meditation. Or this afternoon when I was reflecting on this talk, what came to me is that sometimes it's just a passion for the tradition. There are so many kind of, you could say, for me, the tradition is a kind of collection of stories for me that inspire me, inspire me to want to be in the world in a different way to want to touch a, a deeper way of being. And that, and that keeps my heart on fire, so it's easy to continue to practice. So we have these, these sunflower seeds of faith and energy. Also, I want to point out that uh, Daily, and I'm talking kind of formal uh, sitting meditation practice right now, at least. Daily formal meditation sitting practice feels different than retreat practice. This is important to remember. I mean, maybe you don't have as foolish of a mind as mine, 
But I, th- I think after so many retreats, I, I, I would think to myself, okay, cool. I'm going to start meditating now. I'm going to meditate every day. And what was underneath that impulse is like, I'm going to keep this kind of this feeling going that I kind of have at the end of retreats where I feel a little bit more, just even a little bit more settled. And then what would happen is maybe I'd have a day or two of that. <laughs> and then the third day or fourth day, it'd be like, what, what am I doing wrong? I mean, I, I'm starting to feel kind of more agitated. My mind's more scattered in some kind of way. What's up with that? What am I doing wrong? And then I realized, oh, I'm chasing after some kind of feeling that I got to taste when I was on retreat. In other words, dukkha, right? <laughs> I'm wanting something that's not there. Daily sitting meditation practice has a different flavor than retreat practice. Remembering that, so we're not chasing after some fleeting feeling that you might have had on the retreat. And at the same time, in our daily lives, there's still a place where we can cultivate this spiritual faculty of samadhi. And one of the things I appreciated about uh, Gill's talk about samadhi is, is how he was um, connecting it with these other words. Uh, that which is sacred, a quality of composure. So a quality of unifying the mind or collecting the mind, but in, in kind of in a, in a broader sense, in a, this a poetic sense that was shared with us a few nights ago. And one of the gateways for samadhi for me, and I, I really feel that uh, I, I, you can find this really in the Buddhist tradition as well. One of the gateways is uh, attending to that which is pleasant. Um, for In particular, for example, if it's informal sitting meditation, the pleasantness of the breath, as I mentioned towards the beginning of the retreat. And my feeling is, is um, at least... Yeah, the, the Buddha was all about this. In some ways, I think he was a total pleasure junkie. <laughs> he was just looking for, the thing is, I know that's a little maybe different than what you've heard from the, about the Buddha before, but <laughs> so let me explain. Um, I mean, it's really quite fascinating to me when I look at the way he taught. He was really, it was this whole um, direction of sometimes pointing towards pleasure, wholesome pleasure. As you know, where does he begin uh, the path a lot of times? What does he talk about? Generosity. Generosity feels so good. Have you ever had that, the fullness of of when you are um, uh, expressing generosity in a way that it really has this um, fullness to it? Feels good, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about? The, the the bliss of blamelessness, the, the joy of actually living an ethical life. Have you noticed how good it is to, ha- to have that feeling of integrity behind your actions? There's something so pleasant about it. The experience of kindness has a quality of there's something so pleasant about it. Or when the Buddha talks about renunciation, what does he connect it with? Our joy, our happiness. There's something so full and pleasant about the simple life. Can you open to the wholesome, pleasant things in your life? This is part of continuing to cultivate the faculty of samadhi. And it, it's, it fits in, you could say, physiologically. When my, literally, when my physiology is allowing in the experience of pleasure, it needs to feel safe and settled. Does this make sense? Because if, if, if there's any kind of threat, the last thing my physiology wants to pay attention to is that which is pleasant. It wants to pay attention to anything that's unpleasant because it might be threatening, so it fits into its view of that the world is threatening. And then what you hear around that is that if the, if the system can take in pleasure, it's going to help prompt, prompt a kind of settling, a feeling of safety, which brings in a quality of collecting and unifying, also known as samadhi. So I want to point out that, that this exploration of 
this uh, fourth spiritual faculty, samadhi, in our daily lives also can be really challenging because it is connected with that which is pleasant. Navigating that which is pleasant can be just as challenging as navigating all the difficult, unpleasant things that you've navigated on this retreat. It really can be. Actually, the, the poet Alison Luderman puts it well. I mean, just this first sentence, she says, I'm scared to confess to happiness. Isn't that a great first line? <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. And, and what an apt description of happiness, right? Just for this moment, I want what I have. This the contentment of what's here right now. I mean, obviously you've probably noticed we have a mind that's quite skilled in not wanting what we have or wanting more of what we have. But open to wanting what we have to that kind of happiness and taking the risk of confessing, confessing to happiness. And just like you've probably noticed on this retreat, it's something to be cultivated. It's an art. It takes time, just as it takes time to navigate all the difficulties in our life. take a step back into the regularity of formal practice and one more reminder about that. Just an encouragement not to make it yet another place in your life in which your mind has a chance to beat yourself up. <laughs> it's important to see that if you miss a day or a week, you do just what you do on retreat. You begin again. This is really the working of wisdom. This is the cultivation of uh, what Susie was talking about uh, last night. And it's important because our unskillful habitual patterns seize upon our meditation practice. I remember uh, working with a, a woman who is a, a concert violinist who had become really enamored with the practice and really got into uh, uh, meditation in this path. And uh, uh, about after a year, she started to notice the same relationship that she had with music was the same relationship that started to creep in around her meditation, which was always this feeling of, I'm not practicing enough, enough and I'm not good enough. And actually in her life, when I had met her, she started to hate playing the violin because it was so oppressive. It was just like this whole oppressive thing of like needing to be that much better day after day after day. And then it was quite shocking for her to see that it was the same thing that was happening in her meditation. Which really, I just want to point out, is in some ways what we're looking for in our meditation is we wait for that to arise. And the wonderful thing about meditation, again, what Susie was talking about last night, is then we get just to see it. And then with the, the, the clarity of awareness, we can begin to un disentangle from it. But it's the willingness to disentangle from these habitual patterns. So wisdom is working in the way we're navigating the ups and downs of some kind of regular formal practice in our daily lives.
So in order to knead the dough of this retreat, in order to knead the dough of the five spiritual back faculties into your life, to, to continue to, to, to cultivate something that will nourish you, I think the other arena that uh, it's important to bring it in to is this teaching of what I call uh, this too. This too is a place for my practice. This too is a place for mindfulness, sati, that, that middle spiritual faculty. And one place that I need to remember this too is about the difficulties in my life. If I can just get to the point of saying yes or this too to the challenge that arises, it makes all the difference in the world. And that's, that's the big turn, which I've noticed again and again and again. I remember when this was particularly poignant, I had done a, uh, a month-long retreat where I'd been doing uh, loving-kindness and uh, I remember on the retreat, it was really quite transformative. I'd gotten, you know, it was going kind of through these formal categories of people, and I'd gotten to the difficult person in my life. And I felt like there was this real heart opening and transformation around this, this person um, that felt so important because they were in my community. And after the month-long retreat, um, I got home and they didn't turn out to be difficult. They turned out to be really difficult. <laughs> it was like, I like came home to this nightmare, this kind of this meltdown was going on in, in our local community. And um, everyone was coming to me to figure out the appropriate response to this person. <laughs> and of course my mind can get, uh, was getting caught up in, um, I know, this shouldn't be happening to me, being hooked like this. You know, I've just done a month long of loving kindness and what's going on with my practice. You know the, 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 you know the drill. You know how the mind does these things. <laughs> and the turn came when I was able to say, oh, this too. This too is my practice. This navigating this difficult situation and allowing for a skillful response to arise. And that's when it began to, to turn, when I could sit down in the morning and be hooked by this and just to be like, oh, this too. Oh, this too is my practice. I, I didn't get, have to get into the judging or the figuring out or why I'm hooked. It was just being with it and seeing the this too. Be aware of what your mind wants to exile out of your practice and remember this quality of this too. And even the small things as well, from the grand things to the, to the small things. And again, a, a, a poem that uh, I feel exemplifies this. This is a, a poem by uh, Denise Levertov called Benediction. And one way of understanding this word benediction is that it's this, it's this invocation, an invocation for divine help, a, a, an asking for guidance or a blessing. And so this is her invocation what she's asking for she says she begins marvelous truth confront us at every turn in every guise iron ball egg dark horse shadow cloud of breath on the air dwell in our crowded hearts our steaming bathrooms kitchens full of things to be done the ordinary streets, thrust close your smile that we know you, terrible joy. Marvelous truth, confront us at every turn and every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile that we know you, terrible joy. I 
I find it a, a moving benediction to, to, to call upon the marvelous truth to show, to reveal itself in every moment of our lives, right? In the steaming bathrooms, in the kitchens full of things to be done. Can you bring your practice in there to show up for those places in your life? And open so that it can thrust close its smile into your life. And all flavors of it, the terribleness of it, and the joy of it. And then another arena, which I want to share a reminder about in terms of being nourished by these five spiritual faculties, which I think really uh, supports all of the spiritual faculties. And that's this quality of friendship, of spiritual friendship, so essential on this path. Again, another story. Once upon a time, the Buddha was <coughs> um, hanging out with uh, one of his attendants, uh, Magia. So Magia was a young monk, and uh, usually when you read the Pali discourses, Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, is uh, typically uh, who is attending on the Buddha. But for some reason, Magia, this young monk, is uh, the Buddha's attendant on this day. And they go into into the local village on alms round, and uh, on the way through, um, uh, on the way towards the the village for alms round, Megia sees this beautiful mango tree in a mango grove. And I don't know if you've ever seen a mango tree, but they it spreads out in a way that it really provides uh, wonderful uh, shade, especially in in a, a climate like uh, they were they were living. And Megia sees the mango tree and he's inspired to practice, really inspired to, to meditate. So they go on alms round and they come back from alms round and I think they were uh, having their meal. And again, I don't remember the exact wording, but I'm sure Megia said something like, you know, I saw the mango tree and I just, a venerable sir, and I was just so inspired to, to practice seeing the mango tree. Would it be okay if I go and, and uh, take leave of you and, and practice under the mango tree for the, for the day's abiding? And what the Buddha said was very interesting, especially it coming from the Buddha. He said, uh, Megia, uh, please don't go and uh, uh, practice under the mango tree. In particular, he said, please don't leave me alone and wait until someone else can be here with me, and then uh, uh, that would be the appropriate time to go practice. So I just want to point out, this is a kind of unusual thing for the Buddha to say. I mean, he's, in many places, he's talking about the importance of uh, solitude and seclusion. So I feel like he's giving uh, Magia a very particular teaching for, for Magia about this. And then as the, the story continues, uh, Magia uh, once again says, probably something like, please, pretty please. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I want to do what needs to be done. <laughs> I want to live the holy life. Why don't you let me go practice meditation? And again, the Buddha says, I think it would be better if you wait. Please don't leave me alone, Magia. Wait until uh, someone else can uh, come uh, and attend on me. And again, Magia persists. And as you know, that was the good thing to remember Always ask a Buddha three times and you usually get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> and so Megia, uh, he, he says, very well then, Megia, please uh, uh, do, as, do as you see fit. And Megia goes and begins to practice and uh, the text says that he was assailed by unwholesome thoughts. 
he was having a rough time <laughs> with his meditation. <laughs> Maybe you too have experienced something like Magia has. And so he goes back to uh, uh, the Venerable One. And again, probably said something. You would never guess what happened to me, Venerable Sir. <laughs> I was in- assailed by unwholesome thoughts. <laughs> really? Is that so? <laughs> Just so, Magia. This is why you need to cultivate these qualities. And the, and the first quality that he, uh, that he shares with Magia to, to cultivate is spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship. Friendship, noble friendship, with, with friends with uh, 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 noble friends on the path. This is such an important support. As I, I like to say, you can't do this path alone and no one can do it for you. You can't do it alone, and no one can do it for you. And both are true. There is such a power to community, and, and uh, it's, it's really so essential. And I think often, sometimes, again, not for all of us, to, to given, uh, you know, the, I just want to acknowledge the diversity of kind of cultural backgrounds, but sometimes some of us have come from a cultural background or thrown ourse- finds ourselves thrown into maybe a different culture where there's such an emphasis on individualism that we forget or we unlearn the importance of community and how powerful it is. Again, it's, I mean, it is written all over our DNA. <laughs> you are a mammal that has uh, such a social creature. You know, when you think of primates, they are these mammals that have such social sensitivities. And that's what we are. <laughs> this is what we need to utilize for our path for freedom. And just a practical thing that I find, because sometimes people have a, a difficult time finding a group or finding a group that, that suits them. And I, I think there is a place to find a group or a group of people or friends that really um, uh, fit for you in some kind of way or you feel supported by them. But also to see, don't always be asking the question of what you can get from a group or a group of friends, but what can you give? If I go to a sitting meditation group in, in my sense or am I in a, I'm in a community, I'm asking myself the question of what can I give, then I always leave fulfilled. Oh, tonight what I can give is my silence and my sitting. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And then it doesn't matter if, you know, if it's a horrible Dharma talk that you can't relate to or something like that. It doesn't matter, right? Because you've given something and it feels so great. Whereas if you're looking to get something, then uh, some, some evenings you might be satisfied and some evenings you might not be. To situate it in this, this act of generosity. This is what creates community. And I think so important for our modern day too. I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was onto something when, when he said, uh, he, he predicted that Maitreya Buddha, uh, the, the coming of the, the, Maitreya Buddha is the future Buddha, the Buddha to be, is, uh, would come in the form of, of a community rather than an individual. I feel like there's something so wise about that understanding. The next Buddha will come as a community rather than an individual. Can we, can we be a part of the Maitreya Buddha, the one who is coming to be? And again, a reminder that this path is more than just City meditation and walking meditation, and we even see it in the five spiritual faculties in some way. But it's broader than that. And, and in particular, something that I think it's always important to go back to is this, this uh, quality of ethics and how important ethics is. Ethics, or sila, is the, it's the foundation of what we're doing here. And it's also the expression, the expression of an awakened heart, an awakened mind or to use the language Gil was sharing with us, it's the expression of a mature mind or a mature heart. And I, I wanna uh, 
speak about it a little bit on more the collective level and seeing that that too is our practice. Again, Susie shared with us this this quote that's really stuck with me from Ajahn Amaro, which you probably remember, that 70% of our practice is seeing the suffering and then um, doing it anyway. <laughs> so it's, there's something that feels so accurate about that. <laughs> seeing the suffering yet doing it anyway. And then through the repetition of that again and again and again and seeing it again and again and again, how the mind plays it out. Sometimes it even happens in action being played out. Then once the mind sees it again and again and again, it, be, it can begin to let go of it. And it's wisdom that does the letting go, right? We see it and then wisdom starts to realize, oh, this is, this is not worth it anymore. And then the letting go happens. And in some ways, I wish it only happened on the individual level. But have you noticed, really, it's the same dynamic of the world that we live in. Collectively, we can see the suffering, yet we do it again and again and again. When you think of something like environmental degradation, it's not something new, probably to anyone here in this room environmental de degradation, yet it continues. It continues moment after moment after moment. And all of us are involved in that collective dynamic on some level. How do you bring your practice to that, that, to that collective level? We, we, we don't get out of our responsibility around that just by sitting on a cushion. There needs to be a bigger response, at least for some of us. Or, and maybe I'll just want to take a moment with that. I, and again, I just want to uh, point out how it is so intertwined. And this is, again, um, from the Buddha. I think this is from, yeah, the numerical discourses. Adama, uh, translated as unrighteous or unskillful. And again, it, it feels like it's in some ways in this mythical language speaking to our times. He says, when the people of the towns and countryside are unskillful, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. When the constellations and the stars proceed off course, day and night proceeds off course. The months and fortnights proceeds off course. The seasons and years proceed off course. And when the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. And when they blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived ugly, weak, and sickly. And then oppositely, when the people of the towns and countryside are skillful, the sun and moon proceed on course, the constellations and stars proceed on course, days and nights, months and fortnights proceed on course, seasons and years proceed on course, and when the seasons and years proceed on course, the winds blow on course independently, and when they blow on course independently, the deities do not become upset. And when the deities are not upset, sufficient rain falls. When sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. And when people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. it's an important teaching for our times. It's all connected. It's all connected with the states of mind, the qualities of mind that we're bringing into this world that we act out of. Are they skillful qualities of heart and mind that we're acting from or unskillful ones?
we can see this in many things. There's the environmental de degradation. There's in this country in particular, you know, the, the, we, we live in a country that has, because of its history, been so racialized uh, in, a, in a, a very oppressive way where, where skin color still determines a lot of times uh, what people get and don't get. And I think it's, it's very difficult uh, at least to to acknowledge being to have grown up in this country, and not be uh, affected by that in some way. Again, how do how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this quality of suffering as well? In a similar way that we're doing here, the willingness to meet it and to find a skillful response. And I want to point out that that I really feel that the embodiment, the cultivation of, for example, these five spiritual faculties leads in a direction where we can start to learn a more skillful response to these dilemmas. It's starting to see what's happening within this mind and then seeing what's happening in the mind collectively and then allowing for small but significant actions to arise out of that. They don't have to be huge. They can just be small steps. They can be the small thing, like for example, what I'll be doing on Tuesday night after the retreat in Flagstaff, going to the city council meeting where there's this, this um, resolution about making a statement about this commitment to addressing climate change. It's a small thing, but it's important to, to step in that direction just as we step in a direction of the wholesome, leaving behind the unwholesome. So just to back to, actually this happened last year, I, was, um, I got an email from an old friend of mine from my Zen days and uh, we were talking about what had been going on and she had, um, the week previously, she had just been thrown in jail because of the social action she was doing in Vancouver, BC and they threw her in solitary uh, confinement. And she said, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was the best thing. It was like, I was looking for a retreat and this was great. <laughs> See, so you're set. <laughs> So it can come in handy, this practice. <laughs> and I think one, one thing to remember when we're, when we're faced with, with especially uh, uh, issues that can feel so daunting and overwhelming, some, some qualities to remember that we can bring. And, and, and again, a, a, a story that I find uh, so helpful for, for, for for me to remember about what I need to move forward also on the collective level. And this is a, a story about uh, Kobanchino Roshi. And uh, he uh, actually, at a, a certain point, point in his life, worked with a dying and one of his students um, uh, asked him one time, when you go and visit uh, those who are in hospice, those who are dying, how do you help them? And he said, help them? And the student said, yeah, what do you do? What do you do to help them? And he said, oh, oh, I don't help them. I meet them. I don't help them. I meet them. I think often with these kinds of bigger challenges, what I noticed my heart and mind do is it wants to skip over the meeting the situation and jump into the helping the situation. And when I'm hooked by the helping, I'm often unclear. Can you first just meet these difficulties, whether they be on the individual or collective level, to meet them, to feel them, to sit down with them, 
and then to notice what emerges. And then lastly, in terms of addressing, I'd say both the collective and individual difficulty is, uh, uh, I wanna share with you just um, uh, these words of wisdom from Thomas Merton, which I think really speaks to this uh, reminder of the, the skillful use of this spiritual faculty of energy or effort. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is itself to, to, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys us, destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. Those are powerful words to commit to too many projects, to surrender to too many demands, right? He's saying that's actually a kind of violence. What's the first precept that we've, we've uh, decided to undertake or at least to explore? That of non-harming. A call to, to respond to the difficulties of this world is uh, so important to do in a skillful way rather than a violent way. So they're not, we're not perpetuating some dynamic that might already have enough momentum in the world that we see ourselves in. Can you keep in contact with a practice that allows you to meet what's going on rather than getting carried away? I hope there are some reminders or some reflections you can take away for the beginning of our retreat tomorrow. <laughs> it will happen right after this one. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing all of you there at the beginning of the retreat. Thank you. Let's uh, just sit for a moment. 